This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jerry Van Heese. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heese, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Guys, thanks so much for coming back. Another awesome episode for you here today. We have our third part in the three-part series with Mr. Bill Winky. Now, the series, we called it Habitat To-Dos, or Habitat and Hunting To-Dos. So, it's like what time of the year we're in now, mid to late September, season's right around the corner, what should we be focusing on in our habitat life and our our hunting life coming up here? Um, And we ask Bill Winky what he recommends. Again, Bill is on another level, guys. Um, I truly respect the man. He's accomplished more in his whitetail career than, you know, Brian and I combined, whatever. And it's just awesome to be able to chat with Bill and really get to pick his brain. Um, and we, we dive in. We talk about, you know, finding the bucks, right? It's about time to start hunting them, finding the right tree to be in. We talk about... A lot on, on trail camera strategy. Bill has a, a pretty simple but also fairly aggressive trail cam strategy that he's pumping out right now on his farms, um, you know, late September, early October. We talk about camera placement, when to move them around, looking for daylight picks, um, when to hunt, when not to hunt. We all talk about pressure all the time and how too much pressure is a bad thing. Well, Bill agrees, and uh, don't go into the right time. We, we cover that here today. So I just want to tell you that an awesome three-part series, the first two episodes 
of this series. We're back on episode number 138. That was the beginning of the Habitat to-do list, and then episode 143 was segment two of our Habitat to-dos. So now we're wrapping it up here, guys. Late September, both season is around the corner. If it hasn't already opened where you're at, and uh, we have an awesome conversation with Bill Winky. So thanks again for tuning in. I want to thank Exodus Trail Cameras, guys. We signed up with Exodus this year. A bunch of great guys. We got to go over and see their studio, record some media with them. You can see it on their their channel. They have a spectacular YouTube channel, an awesome podcast. Uh, Chad, Jake, Cam, the guys over there are, are just, just you know, like us. We, we feel like we're, you know, cut from the same cloth, but we, we feel these guys are awesome. Uh, not only are they awesome, they make a great quality product. Five-year warranty on all their trail cameras, guys. Five-year warranty. Who else does that? Um, there may be some others now, but they were the first. I'm opening up a package that I just ordered in of two cell cameras. They're called the Render. So I have two Exodus cell cameras along with two of the SP18 solar panels. So I'm going to be popping these out on my farm Friday, a couple days from now, and seeing the quality of this cell camera and what it can do. So we'll be monitoring that. Now, even the packaging, even the boxes these trail cameras come in are nice. Like, they didn't skip a detail, which is kind of cool because I feel like a lot of the trail cameras out there are made as cheap as they can to make a large profit margin and and sell as many as possible after they break every other year. Um, I know I've had quite the history with many different brands. I'm looking to looking to stop buying trail cameras and, and start sticking with one brand here. And um, from what I've seen so far and what I've heard, these are going to be awesome. Now, guys, we have a special discount code if you are a land plan client of ours. If we wrote a habitat plan for you guys this year, um, we have a special discount on all Exodus gear. Hit me up if you're looking for that. And uh, if you haven't booked a land plan with us this year, you probably should because we are booking into 2022 right now. And we want to help people with their habitat and their hunting on their property. But anyways, if you're interested in seeing what Exodus has to offer, we have a cool uh, mock scrape fest coming up here soon. Head over to their website, guys, exodusoutdoorgear.com. If you use the link below, it'll help us out a little bit. Go check them out. Great company, great guys, quality product, and a five-year warranty. Exodusoutdoorgear.com. Now, I'd like to thank... All of our land plan clients from this year, um, we had a bunch of them, and you guys are awesome. I know our buddy Bob Wingate, he uh, worked on his property here in central Michigan. He just went out to Nebraska and smoked an awesome mule deer. So he's sending me those pictures. You know, I just love getting pictures and, and uh, feedback and information from, from these new friends of ours and just keeping, you know, it's like a little habitat management, you know, club. Like, like these guys are are just as obsessed as we are, so, you know, we're looking to continue to help out on their properties the years to come. Uh, our land plan service does not end as soon as we, we leave your property. You have our phone number and our email and our cell phone for as long as we're around. So feel free to, uh, you know, think about that. If you're thinking about booking a plan for this upcoming year, 2022, you know, I know a lot of people don't know where to start. That's what we help provide. We provide a plan on where to start and what to do and you know what doing nothing and sitting back does not help either so 
if you're you know not happy with your property and, and how it's been performing over the past three, four, five, ten, twenty years, you know, let's talk about it. Let's talk about fixing it. So again, those are up at habitatpodcast.com slash land plans. Like I always say, link in the show notes below. Now I'd like to thank the rest of our partners before we get into it here with Bill Winky. I want to thank Morse Nursery. Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. I know I mentioned this last week, but Chad has more new listings coming out, guys. And if you've been following along, the listings have been hard to come by this year, and he's got a few of them now that look pretty nice. So check out Realtree United Country Land Pro Lake States Realty and Auction. You can find them on our website. Uh, their logo is right there. Take you right to their website. I want to thank Killer Food Plots, Packer Max Call to Packers. Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, The Squirrel at NutPlanter.com, and Afflictor Broadheads. Guys, that's enough out of me for now. We love you. Thank you so much for coming back. But I'm fired up to show you guys segment three here, Mr. Bill Winky on our habitat and hunting to-dos. Okay, on our final you know, segment in this three-part series here, I want to talk about you know, mid to late September, season's right around the corner. It, it, you know, the what did you say earlier at, at the last one? The the buns already in the oven at this point, for the most part. Um, what what are you doing as your you know your final wrapping up of habitat or hunting you know to do list at this time? I think your habitat and your food plot stuff is over with now. It's more about how are you going to make the most of your season, and I think that September is critical. The last three weeks of September especially, and, and even into a little bit of October, uh, because, you know, the, the bucks have a summer range and they have a fall range, and you can get used to seeing them where they're at in July, June, but then when you go to hunt them and those spots are not there anymore, and it's super frustrating. So I always really focus on trying to figure out where they're at after about the middle of September. About the 10th of September is when I start really running my trail cameras. Uh, I want to find out when they break up those those bachelor groups and they disperse out into their fall ranges, that's when I want to find them. So this is a super, super busy time for me, and, and probably the most important time of the whole season, I think, is that uh, trying to find the bucks that you want to hunt in their fall ranges. And it takes them, you know, every deer is different, of course, uh, but on average, probably two to three weeks to settle in. You know, they'll... Because, you know, go back and think about the summer. You know, there, you'll see four or five really nice bucks running together, and you're thinking, man, what a hot spot. Um, but they're not all going to be there after they shed their velvet. Uh, their testosterone levels rise. They don't like each other anymore. Now they spread out. And typically, you know, you can't – nothing's 100%, but typically they're going to go back to the same place they, they spent the previous fall. So if you know a buck's fall range – from the previous season, pretty good chance it's going to be the same this season. So that's a good starting point. But uh, you do have to find those spots, and that's where I think the, the real work of hunting. Everybody says, oh, tree stand hunting, all you do is you just kind of sit in a tree and hope for the best. That's not really true because you have to be in the right tree. And being in the right tree, that's what you're trying to figure out in September, in my opinion. The last three weeks of September and the first week of October so I'm really aggressive running my trail cameras then, and I don't worry too much about trail cameras once the season gets going. 
In fact, I don't really want to know day-to-day what's going on. I kind of like that a little bit of the unknown. Uh, but I do want to know which parts of the area that I can hunt have bucks that are big enough to, you know, to, to fit the criteria or old enough. So I want to know where those those deer are at. So at least I'm focusing all my hunting time in areas that have a chance. Uh, it's pretty silly to say, well, I'm trying to kill a big deer, and then you're hunting a part of your property that doesn't have one. Um, so you just got to find them, and that's the time when you do that. So where are you putting those cameras at this time of the year, Bill, when you're getting into that September time frame? It kind of depends a little bit on the state and what the regulations are because if you have the option of putting your camera over bait, you have a lot more leeway as to where you can put them and still get that effective inventory because you can move them a little bit. Um, So in Iowa, it's legal to put trail cameras over corn. You know, we can't hunt over bait, but we can run cameras over bait. So I, I very sparingly will put out bait and then run my cameras over those. And uh, I move around a fair amount. I don't want the bait out there long enough to change the behavior of the deer, to pull a deer from you know this side of the farm over to that side, because then you haven't learned anything. So you want it to be, you know, a, a few bags, you know, like three days per bag, you know, maybe three bags max, nine days. And then you, you say, okay, I'm either, either he's here or he's not here. You know, if I keep running in this spot, I can pull deer here that don't live here. And as soon as sure. I stop running the corn, they're gone. You know, so what did that really benefit me? Um, so I try to do it really quick, and, and I do along field edges then because I can drive right up to it with the four-wheeler. I can pull them out of bedding areas and, and hit those spots. You know, it's nice to know which ones are daylight active and which ones are on scrapes back in the timber during the day and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like the risk-reward is too high on that one. Um, you, you're going to damage too much getting that information that by the time you get the information, it might not be useful anymore because you've changed their behavior. Um, so I, I I would rather know a little bit less about what they're doing back in the timber and just assume that my woodsmanship maybe or my knowledge of white-tailed deer movement can kick in and I can anticipate that rather than trying to find out, like, which trail are they using and stuff like that. I, I think you risk too much to find out that detail. Uh, I just want to know which part of the property they're they're living in, and uh, I can go from there, you know, as I get into the hunt itself, and, and manage my impact a little bit better than running, you know, cameras back in those places and risk spooking those deer. Uh, so that's that's my strategy. It's the stuff I can get to on the four wheeler that I can drive to with my truck, um, and then I move. Like I said, I move around a lot. I don't I don't want to change their behavior. I just want to find out what's there really quick, really efficiently, accurately, and then keep moving. Okay, so when you're done with uh, the nine, call it the nine or ten day um, camera station, you're pulling that camera and you're moving on, correct? Unless I found a buck that I, I really need to dial in on, Got then you. I'll switch over. And I might bring three cameras into that area and, okay. and get off the bait completely and just be on mock scrapes or something that, that still doesn't take me into the timber. But I can't keep running bait in that area because eventually, you know, you're starting to hunt over bait, you know, if you want to hunt that deer there. Um, so you've got you've to have kind of a, a stopping point where, you know, yes, I've, I've got my quick inventory. This is a buck I really want to hunt. I don't know if I can figure enough, you know, I don't know if I know enough about this deer to hunt him effectively. I need more information. Then I might bring a couple more cameras in and set them up in, you know, maybe time-lapse mode over the edge of a field 
or do different kinds of strategies like that that aren't uh, bait, you know, intensive, then I can gain whatever more information I can that way and still leads me into the hunting season without, you know, having that issue of legality of, of you know, bait in that area. Sure. And on the, on the camera subject still, say, say you still had your old farm. You were, I think you were up towards a thousand acres there. How many cameras do you think you would have actively running at one time come this, this time of the year, that September well, time frame? And, and surprisingly, it wasn't a high number. It'd be anywhere from six to 10. Okay. Um, yeah. But I moved them a lot. And like I said, I mean, I, I feel like you've got a month there, maybe a little bit more even where the deer are still telling you, you know, where their fall range is before you start hunting. So you can move around quite a bit. Uh, you got, and again, once you find one that really grabs your attention, if you don't know enough about that deer already or, or you can't assume enough, you know, about how to hunt him, you might have to dial in a little bit more on that deer. You know, like bring in more cameras right there and then, uh, you know, not, not running over bait anymore. And I've done that and had pretty good success. Also had good success, believe it or not, of finding out where they actually live by by backtracking them, you know, with the cameras. Like, let's say you run a, you know, camera over a corn pile and the deer shows up at 2 in the morning. You're like, man, he doesn't live anywhere around here, you know, or he'd have been here at 8, you know, or whatever. So you, you get that first picture of when he showed up, what direction is his butt pointing, and then you just go in that direction however far you feel like you can get away with, you know, without swooping stuff and dropping another camera. Now you're, you know, you're just three or four days later, you backtracked him, you know, another several hundred yards, let's say. Now he hits that one at 9 p.m. He's coming from a slightly different direction when he hits it. You're thinking, okay, I got a pretty good idea where this deer is betting. I don't really need to go backwards any further on him. Or there's still too many options. I still don't know enough about him. Let me jump on the other side of the cover and see, you know, whether he's coming, you know, through this stuff or whether he lives in there or whatever. And, and over the course of just a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, you can narrow that, that deer's core area right down. Um, you have to be pretty active. You know, you can't just sit back and say, boy, I sure hope he starts moving during the day. Well, he's not going to because he doesn't live there. You know, he's, he's getting there late. Um, he's coming from somewhere else. So the idea, if you have enough land or you have enough ability to move around, figure out where he's coming from. And that's where he's going to be showing up a lot closer to daylight. That makes perfect sense. And then are you are you doing any of this with cellular cameras, or are you keeping the regular cameras that you can check on the four-wheeler, or, or what's your thought there? Yeah, and, and you know, maybe I'm a slow adopter. Um, I haven't really crossed that line yet with cellular cameras. Um, it's a I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's more just philosophical. I don't, you know, there's, there's a line. Everybody's got a line. Well, well, you know, with a compound bow, Bill, why don't you shoot a recurve? Well, good point. You know, so, but everybody has a line somewhere. You know, and, and the cellular cameras right now is still my line. I don't use them. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not like I'm beating my chest and telling people that they shouldn't. And, sure. You know, if it's legal, I'm all for it. It just, for some reason to me, there's just a part that's lost of, of having to figure this stuff out and being stealthy and, you know, I don't know. You don't want it to get too easy. You can make deer hunting too easy. Uh, believe it or not, I, I'm sure I'm sure some people uh, have actually done that and, and made it too easy. Oh, for sure. Um, I know I know a lot of people that have. You know, I, I could give you names of people that you'd say, "Oh gosh, I know who that is." Really? Don't, don't even enjoy it <laughs> anymore because they made the sport 
too systematic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you got you to have that happy happy medium. I haven't made it yeah. too systematic yet. I can tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And, and you have to kill enough of them, too, I think, where you're not worried about, you know, saying, oh, I haven't shot my deer yet. Well, gosh, you need to have some success. So anything legal that gets you that success, then little by little you'll start to kind of move yourself into that place where you gain the most satisfaction out of the sport. And I think that's where yep. everybody needs to, to evolve to, you know I mean? Rather than saying, oh, my sense of satisfaction should be yours. Well, that's not true. If it's legal, hey, do it. Um, and then if you're not taking advantage of the resource and ruining it, you know, and it's still sporting, great. Uh, you don't have to do it my way. So I have a quick question regarding legality. Um, that The baiting situation where you're throwing down bait for a camera location, can, is there a time limit on when you have to stop doing that, or can you do that all year round? You need to talk with the local game warden if you have states like that. Um, okay. I mean, obviously, if you have bait in front of your camera and baiting is legal, who cares? It's only the situation where they allow baiting in front of cameras, but you can't hunt over bait, which there aren't very many states like that anymore. Um, those are the only ones that it matters. But uh, like in Iowa, the, the game warden that I, that I spoke with said that, you know, you can't hunt actively baited sites. And, and you know, we just kind of threw 10 days out. You know, or I think that's kind of what he what he said. Yeah, I mean, if you want to hunt this area, then, you know, I, I'd prefer if you hadn't had it actively baited for 10 days. But it's not like it's a hard rule where he's going to say, oh, this one's been nine days. You know, it's, it's pretty dang subjective, which which okay. I think is a bad situation for any law. It's really hard to enforce something like that. The law states that you can't hunt bait. You can't hunt bait or trails leading to it. Um, so if the bait's not there... Are you hunting bait? You know, literally, you could interpret it to say, well, the deer ate the last kernel yesterday, so I'm legal. Okay. Um, but you still cross that line, I think, with the ethics of it. You know, maybe technically you are legal, uh, but they're still going to that spot for a couple more days. If you run truck camera over bait, you know that they quit really, really quick when you stop running the corn. I mean, literally, when the corn's gone, the, the, the photos might go from 500 a day to like five a day. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating. That's how quick they, they abandon those spots. So I can make a case for saying that three or four days after you stop using the bait, it's it's an unbaited location. But I always figured 10 days, and that way you never have to worry about it. <clears throat> sure, sure. Now, say say you you found a buck on the camera that, that you want to hunt. It's, you know, mid to late September. You kind of have an idea – where he's living. You've, you've tracked him back a couple hundred yards. You're getting closer. Um, are you, you know, d- to find that perfect tree in that area, are you waiting for any certain conditions or are you waiting for opening morning or, or what are your thoughts there? Any, any annual conditions that might be repeating where you saw him on his feet before? What, what goes through your head when it's getting to go time? Yeah, you've got a couple of green lights really that, that I think signal that and, um, if you're getting daylight pictures of him, then, you know, and, and the season's open and you don't violate any baiting rules, you know, within that time frame, whatever, then go for it. Don't, don't wait. Uh, daylight patterns in the early season are really, really rare. I mean, they're like, I don't know how often you can find a four-leaf clover, but I feel like a daylight pattern in early October is way harder to find than a four-leaf clover. Um, for sure. So, so that usually <laughs> doesn't happen once in a while. And, and, uh, 
the other the other really green light is the cold fronts. Um, those October cold fronts, you'll have a day there when it seems like everything moves, even mid October or you know tenth of October or whatever. Um, but the temperature has to drop a fair amount. It has to be probably 10 degrees below the seasonal norm for that time of the year or more in order to really drive that home. Um, but those are the main green lights early. And then for me, the next green light is about the, you know, when do I start my, you know, quote unquote rut hunting? And that's usually around the 25th of October for me. So th that's kind of, kind of what sets me off on, on a course is, uh, I would love to know where the deer is moving during the day. And I'll keep trying really hard to find that spot because even if I don't hunt him right away, even if I give him that 10 days after I find him, he's still going to be there, you know, and active, you know, as we start rolling into that later part of October and you catch a cold front, um, that deer is very killable in that area. No, that makes sense. And and if you're, if you're looking for that daylight activity and, and you're not running – a ton of cameras or maybe you can't get in there as clean as you'd like. Maybe the camera shouldn't be there in the first place. But um, are you doing any glassing from a, from the truck, from the tree stand, anything like that? Or, or if not, what are you recommending? Uh, yeah, I guess then you're relying on the trail camera data, right? Yeah, just I think then, you know, if you're really trying to find out, like let's say you go in and you do find that buck score area and you're getting daylight pictures of him and a lot of pictures. And you're like, dang, this deer lives right around here pretty close. That's when you switch to those cameras that are on mock scrapes and, and, you know, accessible trails, stuff that you can sneak into. You know, I, I always wear waders. This is another quick tip, too, but I always wear waders when I'm checking my cameras because I never leave any scent then on the ground uh, anywhere. And I don't mind the four-wheeler. Everybody's like, oh, but the four-wheeler has an odor. I don't really know if it does or doesn't. You know, granted, they do if you're standing next to them, but, you know, four hours later, can they smell where a four-wheeler drove? Maybe. But do they care? Probably not. But they do care if they smell where you walk. Um, right. So I always wear waders. And that way, you know, if I sneak in there at noon and run, you know, across three cameras really quick, pull the cards out, I'll look at them right away. And if there's daylight movement activity, I'll go and hunt that spot that evening, you know, assuming that the whole baiting thing is out of the, you know, out of the legal question. Um, so that, that's when it does pay, I think, to switch over and start running, you know, cameras on those you know, unbaited locations in spots where you have found a buck on a daylight pattern. But once again, it's super rare. Um, it just almost never happens. But as you get past the middle of October, it starts to happen more and more. Then you get into like the, the last couple of weeks and for sure the last week of October. If you have a cold front, it's going to be really, really good. You know, you need to be there. Um, so that's, that's kind of my, you know, my thoughts on that. And, and um, you know, everybody wants to hunt. You know, that's the frustrating part about being conservative is you're saying, well, I, I don't want to go in and mess this up. So you just sit there and sit there and sit there. So it's nice to have a plan B location, someplace where you can go and shoot does or maybe just get lucky and have a buck that you didn't know of, you know, that pops up. But you don't really want to start hunting aggressively in your better areas until you've got a good green light to kick you off um, because you can do more harm than good in October by hunting aggressively. So, Bill, it's go time now. We're getting towards the season. Let's say you got a guy, and, and you probably found yourself in this position many years ago. You're starting to get a little bit better at deer hunting. You've got the wind figured out, how to play it, how to play the terrain. Can you give us a couple of examples, just a quick couple things maybe that took you to that next level 
where you're going to start consistently getting on mature deer. Yeah, I think it's it's the answer that people don't want, and that is that you only hunt when the conditions are right for you. Um, and, and that means that, you know, if you're hunting public land, it's different. You've got to be more aggressive. You don't have an option. But if you're hunting an area that you have at least reasonable control over the amount of human pressure that these deer are getting, you have to apply that pressure slowly. You know, it's you're going to get a lot more toothpaste out of the tube if you squeeze it slow from the bottom up. Um, you grab it and you give it a hard squeeze, you know, that's it. You know, it's not going to be as good. So you just have to be patient and you have to wait until the situation works for you because as soon as they know that you're hunting them, they become a lot harder to kill. And as long as they're moving naturally, you have a chance. But as soon as they stop moving naturally, um, kind of hard to get back on them again, to be honest with you, because they're either going to move someplace else or they're going to move only in the in the night in those areas where they feel like, you know, there's a person. And, and it's not one example or, or one, one experience. Um, you know, they're going to have occasional experiences with people. It's that reinforcement. So it's almost like you have to hunt a spot twice before you really ruin it. Um, you know, I feel like you kind of get away with it once. You know, just don't go back again for a long time. You know, I mean, you, you can, you know, you can try the Hail Mary. You know, it's just, I just feel like the second time around, that's, they just don't forgive it. Um, then, then they're like, okay, yep, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be comfortable around here anymore because there's a person here. But if you think about the Midwest, especially, there aren't too many places where a deer can go where they don't run into at least somebody once in a great while. I mean, the farmers out there, you know, running his cows out of the timber, or he's, you know, fixing a fence, or you name it. You know, it's not like they're going to freak out and completely abandon that area. But if you reinforce it, then they start to get really nervous in those spots. That is that is probably one of the best tips right there, and something. We try to talk about a lot with it being, you know, correct access or or hunting pressure. That's huge. That's huge. I I think that's great. I, and again, that's probably the number one offending thing that we see, yeah. especially with some people we talk to or, or help out. It's um, stay out till the time is right. You know, stay yeah. out. And it's so hard to do. So you really do need another area because you have to have an outlet because you want to be in a tree and you should be. And it's <laughs> exactly. beautiful out. You just don't want to be, you don't want to be pushing the, you know, the accelerator when you shouldn't on those, you know, special bucks that you've got in mind. Now, Bill, to to wrap up this third and final segment here regarding the the habitat and hunting to do's, let's hear about a buck that you tracked down with the cameras, got him, you know, pretty much pegged and then slipped in there the first, you know, half of October or so and and got him killed. Well, the the one that <clears throat> comes easiest to mind is the buck that I killed this past season, and this was after selling the farm. And I have a, a property that I leased. In the process of trying to buy land, you know, I there was one farm I really wanted to buy, and the guy wouldn't sell it to me. And you know, I I tried really hard to convince him. He said no. He said I'm just not going to sell it. So be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, he finally said, Yeah, I'll lease it to you. Um, so I leased it, and it's an area near where I used to hunt. It bordered one of the farms that I used to hunt when I was a kid, you know. So it's sort of like the, you know, you get those warm fuzzies, you know, when you go back, you know, to where you grew up and hunt some of those same areas. And 
in anyway. So it was, it was an area that I really wanted to be in. So I felt like going ahead and leasing it. And uh, there was a buck on there that was showing up on the cameras. It's basically a big valley bordered by, by bluffs. And I didn't have access to come into the bluffs from above. That was other people's properties. So I had basically the valley where a lot of food was. And then these bedding areas, these bluffs that bordered it. And uh, really challenging type of a situation to hunt. Because if you think about it, to say you go up the valley and hunt someplace, whether you're on one of the bluffs in a, in a bedding area or whether you're hunting in the bottom itself, you know, how do you get back out of there again? You know, it's, you're just going to spook so many deer. So even as good as the place was and as much as I really loved it, the huntability of it was, was pretty challenging. But I got lucky, and anyway, this buck was coming to the cameras, and every time he'd get there in the evening to the first camera, he would uh, come from a certain direction. And I thought, well, I know in that country that they bed high. They bed up on these bluffs and these ridges and these points that over, you know, overlook these fields in the bottoms, and then they're either going to go down to feed or they're going to go out further on the, on the ridge back where it widens out into the ag fields up on top. You know, these, these uh, side hills are basically places that you can't get to with a plow, you know, so they're pretty steep. But they'll go either direction. They'll either go further out or they'll come down in the bottom. And in this situation, all the food was down in the bottom, which I controlled. So he was coming down in there. But he was getting there late. Um, and it didn't take me very long to figure out where this deer was bedding because, like I said, they bed up on those points. And there was only a couple of them in that direction where his butt was pointing when he got to the camera, you know, for his first photo in the evenings. So I had a really good idea where he was bedded, and uh, I didn't want to start hunting too soon because, you know, I love, you know, I love that area, and I wanted to be up there for a while. So I didn't start hunting until the 25th of October, even though I had a pretty good idea where he was bedded, you know, well before that. Um, hunted up there a couple times, and uh, I think the third time I went in, it was an afternoon hunt. And usually you don't hunt bedding areas in the afternoons, but he wasn't getting down there to the camera or into the bottom in, in uh, any kind of daylight. Plus, like I said, it was so hard to hunt those bottoms because at the end of legal shooting time, you try to walk out of there and every deer in that whole valley is going to blow out. Uh, so the uh, I was hunting up on the, on the ridge and he came moseying past probably an um, hour and a half, maybe two hours before the end of legal shooting time. And he was big. I mean, he was the best deer around. And I saw him coming. I'm like, no way. Uh, he was probably 25 yards away, coming straight at the tree. And, uh, you know, I had to get into a standing position because I was sitting, you know, it's like, well, no deer are going to be moving this early. You know, I just got to put your time in because you can't come waltzing in here right when the deer are on their feet. You know, so I'm just sitting back, you know, kind of enjoying the afternoon. And there he is walking straight at me. So I had to get stood up and, and got him in position for the shot. And by the time I did that, he was 10 yards away and he started to angle away from me just a little bit. So I was able to get an open shot on him and, and killed him with a 10 yard shot. But, uh, that one, that, that deer, you know, I couldn't have killed him without the, without knowing that he's there. So I probably wouldn't have hunted that aggressively in those bedding areas in the afternoons that early in the season. Um, had I not known it's the 29th of October when I killed him. Um, had I not known that that's the likely spot where that deer was living. Um, but it worked good, and, and it was really fun. I mean, really fun, very satisfying, you know, to get back home again and shoot a nice deer. Um, so that was really cool. Uh, that, and that's one that worked out. But I, I could give you 25, 30 other examples, you know. I mean, <laughs> trail cameras have just changed the way we hunt. Uh, and, yeah. and 
I think it's awesome, um, but you just can't push it too far. You don't want to make the hunt, like, you know, too easy. You still want to have to know that, okay, the deer lives in this area. Now I've got a hunting. You can't let the camera hunt him for you. Great, great tip and an and awesome story. Um, and, and to that tip, a lot of the... A lot, of, a lot of the pictures and information we get, if you're not checking it regularly, could be two weeks ago, right? So it's almost, some of it's maybe better used for next year at that point. Um, yeah. Depending and on what you're And I think just knowing, you know, just knowing where they live in, in the middle to second half of October is super, super important information. I mean, that's, that's everything, really, because you can figure out, you know, which trails to sit on. You play the wind, you know, your entry and exit routes. you got to use, you know, a little bit of, of, of hunting craft, you know, to pull it off. But you really only have to know which part of the property that you can hunt that he's living in. If you, when you say it that way, you're really narrowing it down fairly quickly. Because um, yeah. there's only certain spots within that area that you can hunt anyway, you know, because you can't go in there and say, well, he's using this trail. I need to hunt that trail. Well, maybe you can't, you know, because the wind is wrong, the access is wrong. So, you know, I don't need to know all that stuff. All I need to know is where he's living, and then I can figure out, which spots within that area I can effectively hunt without, you know, putting the deer on edge. Bill, how how big was that when you killed last year up on the ridge? Probably mid one eighties. Very nice. Yeah, Very he was nice. really good deer. That's impressive. Yeah, he was awesome. I mean, it was a surprise. I mean, I, obviously, I knew he was there when I killed him, but it was I was really excited to have deer that big. I didn't know there was going to be deer that big in, in there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no wonder that guy doesn't want to sell you his farm. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he saw pictures of the deer after he killed him, too. So he's probably got all kind of plans for himself now. <laughs> well, Bill, that was um, that was quite the the tip filled segment as well. There, um, thanks thanks for for doing this. Uh, take, definitely taking up a, a good amount of your time, and, and we just appreciate you you coming on today. So. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate you guys, you know, for what you're doing, educating people. And, you know, I feel like at the end of the day, uh, you know, if we can help people enjoy the sport more, then we owe that to the sport itself. And, and you know, you know, the, the longer I do this and the more I've been in this business, you know, I realize that it really does come, does come down to just helping people to be effective enough that they can enjoy this. And, you know, it's so frustrating at first when that learning curve is so steep and everything you try doesn't work and it's like, oh, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. You know, if we can help people to get up that curve quicker, I think we make the sport better. I would agree. I think that is uh, a great way to put it, especially because it can be intimidating if you, like you said, that learning curve is so steep in the beginning. And, um, you know, between you and, and what you guys have, have done over the past how many years, getting guys like me totally addicted to it and, and into it where now we can help other people. It's just, it's simple to do. It's, it's a good thing to do. And um, we just appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much listeners for coming and listening once again to the Habitat podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor, leave us a five star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. 
We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras, The Squirrel at NutPlanter.com, Packer Max Cultipackers, Afflictor Broadheads, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Realtree United Country Lamb Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. <laughs> <laughs>